Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. Hi, Lynn. Here, um, here I'm with Lynn Twist, dear friend and the, uh, one of the founders of the Pachamama Alliance and many, many other things. If you want, you could go read her bio somewhere. I guess I'll probably put that on the website. But I'd like to just uh, first thank you for taking the time, Lynn. My pleasure. It's always a joy to talk to you, Charles Eisenstein. Mm-hmm. It's always provocative, interesting, insightful, and fun. So thank you for inviting me. I guess maybe I'll start by asking you, what was it that sent you off the deep end, so to speak? I mean, your life path is not ordinary. You're known in the fields of philanthropy, fundraising. You were, I think you were the founder of the Hunger Project or something, but you were like really deeply involved in that. What took you out of the, uh, what I call the old story of wealth maximization and, you know, the normal life. Like, did something happen to you? (laughs) Uh, Yes, but I'm not sure how to talk about it exactly. But yes, I think something happened to me. Anyway, I, I sort of did. I was sort of on that path. Uh, I'll, I'll just say my husband, Bill, when I got married, I went to Stanford and I married, you know, my hero. Mm-hmm. And he went to business school, and he was number one at business school. He's a brilliant guy. He still is. Been married to him for 52 years, so it worked out great. And he, uh, when he was graduating business school, he was recruited because he was the number one guy at, at his business school, Northwestern Business School, by all these companies in New York and Boston and San Francisco and L.A. and stuff. And I remember thinking then, is this the, what we're going to do? Are we going to do this thing where you just do everything you can and make as much money as possible? I remember questioning it right at the beginning when it, I could see that that path was available to us. Uh, but it was kind of what everybody was doing. So I questioned it, but then I just questioned myself, thinking there was something wrong with me that I was questioning that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of put that to bed. And, um, and then he, he did get a really fabulous opportunity in San Francisco, and that's where we wanted to live, et cetera. But I think that thing that happened to me is the EST training. I, I really, really, that really rocked my world. I just like, you know, everybody doesn't need to take the EST training to have this kind of thing happen to, me, to them. But to me, there was something about that program that just totally broke my life open. Mm-hmm. At that time, it was 1974, and it was harsh. The S training it was you, it was like beating, being you know knocked over the head with a two by four. It wasn't gentle. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of yelling, and and I think probably because people were so unconscious, I was one of them that was unconscious, and it got a terrible reputation of being a cult and you know being harsh and people couldn't go to the bathroom and all that stuff. But I can just report as a person who went through that that it worked (laughs) um yeah perfectly for me and i and i woke up out of keeping up with the joneses trying to be somebody i wasn't i really i really realized oh i'm just totally caught in a what i would now call a trance that's just not consistent with who who i want to be or what i want to do with my life and i took it before bill um, he, he signed up, but then he backed out. He thought, no, you, you go first. <laughs> Let's see what this thing is all about. And then I was so 
awakened by it, I'll say, and, you know, I, I was going to say changed, but I don't think that was really what happened. I just got aware that he realized, so I better take this thing, then he took it. And we got involved in, in the consciousness movement, you might say, or the human potential movement. I don't really know if those terms apply to what happened to us, but we really realized this is the real deal. There's another way of looking at life. And um, we took a lot of those programs and we got involved with Werner Earhart, who was the founder. Mm -hmm. In my view, is still my, I would say, you know how people call about Buddhists talk about their root teacher? He's definitely my root teacher. I mean, that mm -hmm. guy is just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's all, all kinds of stories about him, but when it comes right down to it, the number of people whose lives who totally transformed as a result of his work is just, it's just astronomical. Hmm. So I got very involved. I started to work for Est and I had little kids. So it was completely, <laughs> it was completely inconvenient because the Est staff at that time, people worked all night. Mm -hmm. It was probably like being in a startup now. Um, you work 24 seven and everybody was single except for me. Nobody had kids, and I, I I made a special arrangement with the organization with Werner to work from nine to three because I had little kids. But then I couldn't stop. I was obsessed. It was almost like a, you know, so heady. And I really got into it. And um, this is in my book, The Soul of Money. But the the Hunger Project then was the next level of that. And the Hunger Project really began in many ways because. Myself and another another friend who was working at S at the time, we had this insight. If Buckminster Fuller met Werner Erhard, something mm -hmm. amazing would happen. Mm -hmm. And so we, through a series of circumstances, arranged for them to meet. And out of their conversations, and we were huge Bucky fans, Bucky Files, which mm -hmm. is Buckminster Fuller Hung Moon, and we thought Werner was the most brilliant person alive. And when we put those two people together, that what happened was the hunger project a commitment to end world hunger when that was communicated for the first time by warner when he shared very publicly in a meeting that i was in i'm taking a stand to end world hunger it may not happen in my lifetime but i'm going to put my heart and soul and my commitment behind ending world hunger it was so shocking it was in 1977 it would be like me telling you i'm gonna i'm gonna end rain it's yeah. never going to be again. I mean, something that seemed so inconceivably impossible at that time. And it swept me off my feet. I, I remember when he said that, I, was, I didn't think I was going to be able to function after that. I was so excited. And I decided that was why I was born. So then the Hunger Project was, became the next wake-up call for me that I could make a difference with my life because I learned that from Bucky Fuller, that a little individual could make a difference that would impact all humanity. That was the experiment of Bucky's life. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, that it was possible, at least Werner said, and Buckminster Fuller said it was possible in world hunger, I thought, oh my, my God, if I can participate in that, my life will be worth living. Mm -hmm. So I got super involved in the Hunger Project. I was not a founder. Werner Earhart is the founder. Uh, John Denver is a founder. Bob Fuller was the founder. There were three founders technically, but I was there at the very beginning and I had a hand in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll just say one more thing. All of this that I'm sharing now really goes back to the fact that my father died um, when I was 13 years old. And um, he died of a heart attack very suddenly. He was only 50 years old. He died. And we all went to bed one night and everybody woke up in the morning and except for one person, he was dead. And he had a heart attack in his sleep in the middle of the night. No struggle. My mother was sleeping in the same bed. She, he looked tired in the morning, so she didn't wake him. And he had died at about 3 a.m. And it was such a shock. And um, this, it, it, that event, I thought it was my fault. Mm -hmm. Children kind of often do that when a parent dies inexplicably. And I learned later, really I learned in the S training, that I had, that I had to right, that I had some belief system that I had to do something major to make up for my father's death. So all of this kind of fit together mm -hmm. when the Hunger Project began. Could I make that kind of a difference with my life? That would absolve me 
of my father's death. I know this is totally illogical, but that's the way, the kind of a weird way our brain works sometimes. So that set me on a path of what I, uh, I call living a committed life, mm-hmm. a life where I make, and I still do make huge commitments that take me over. And then I become shaped by my commitments rather than my desires. Mm-hmm. Or what I've said I do rather than my, what I, I think my needs are. Um, it's right. like a, a surrendering of, of a life mm-hmm. to something larger. And yeah. to me, that's been a godsend. So that's a kind of a mm-hmm. overview. You, you could, you could say that you're making a gift of your life. That's yeah. what it is, to commit to something. You're giving yourself to that thing. Right. And that's, you know, one of the things I've been talking about a lot for quite a few years the yearning to do that is born of our realization that life is a gift to us, you know, that we didn't earn this. So what am I going to do with this life that I'm given? The spirit of the gift is that you pass the gift on and it travels in a circle and everyone in the circle is thereby enriched. I agree with that completely. There's a book called the life we are given Mm. by Mike Murphy and George Leonard that Mm -hmm. when I read that title, I didn't even read the book. That seems totally true to me, that this is a gift, this life. And then if you're blessed, the whole experience of being blessed is to bless. That's the mm-hmm. reason one would be blessed, it seems to me. Right. So I, I totally agree with that. So I turned my life over to these commitments uh, exactly as a gift. So where would you, what would you say that the uh, origin of the commitments is? Like why do you choose to commit to one thing rather than another? Do you have any insight into that process? I probably won't say anything that profound. It was almost like being in the right place at the right time. When the Hunger Project was born, I was just so fortunate to be around Bucky Fuller and Werner Earhart and a whole group of amazing people that were talking about what is the greatest, what is the most challenging issue of our time? What is the greatest breakdown in human integrity? Mm-hmm. Um, and the integrity of the human family. And it became very, very clear in 1977, it was hunger, that mm-hmm. a quarter of the people on the planet could not feed themselves and their family. And we had way more food than we need on planet right. Earth. Was a breakdown in the integrity of the human family, that we would allow 44,000 children a day under five to die of hunger and starvation. Just like such an indictment of the human family. And I remember... Um, I'll say being in the right place at the right time that I heard that I got that information and I was like, I am not going to allow that to continue. So in many ways, it's just, it showed up in front of me. Um, I chose that topic. Right. And then the same thing with Pachamama Alliance. Um, Same thing with the Nobel Women's Initiative. The things that I work on, they show up for me and I'm drawn to them and they reach into my soul. But I don't know how to explain it. Mm-hmm. Except that I'm paying attention, you might say. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it would necessarily be helpful to explain it. I find that just describing how it is for you can alert other people and, and myself to pay attention to the same thing. So I, th- I find these stories, your stories, really valuable. And I wonder, there's a couple of things. One is and this so often happens in life where something calls to your care. That's how I, I describe this process. Something calls to your care because of where you are at a certain moment. And there's a certain thing that gets under your skin, you know, then, and this is, you know, from my own experience, then I will uh, attack that thing, that problem using the tool set that I already have and using, and from the worldview that I already have, and then, and I see this happening in the world all the time, where the means of addressing a problem and the, the solution set and the conceptual set is actually part of the problem. And so you maybe after years and years realize that you need to be working on a deeper level. Yeah. Um, so if, to take the hunger issue, you know, the, the most superficial level is we've got to get food to these people as fast as possible. And that will feed them and that solves the problem. And then then you start to realize the institutional forms of scarcity that 
cause hunger to break out again and again and again in the midst of actually global plenty. Mm -hmm. You go deeper to the systems level. Yes. And then underneath the systems level, I believe the narrative level, the level of story and perception and meaning. Does this describe any part of your trajectory? I mean, it seems that Pachamama is working on a deeper level or at least has like a, a strand of DNA within it that is on a much deeper level than the Hunger Project was. But um, this is a very superficial impression. And I wonder if you have any resonance with that process. I have total resonance with what you said. Uh, I would say the Hunger Project is the deepest work I've ever seen on the planet in terms of what you're describing. The mm -hmm. Hunger Project was the what taught us how to look at the being, really understand the being sphere, the paradigm, the looking deeply underneath, as you were just describing, that made Pachamama possible. See, I would say, you know, I, I was at Stanford yesterday in a meeting, and, and someone said something so great. They said, um, you know, people say, are you part of the problem? Or are you part of the solution? But actually, if you're actually going to be part of the solution, you have to realize you're also part of the problem. Mm -hmm. You have to be part of the problem and understand that you are in order to be useful to the solution. And I would say the Hunger Project is, is so, particularly when we created it in the beginning, um, and Werner Erhard wrote up a document, which I highly recommend to everybody listening, and especially, Charles, you would especially appreciate it if you've never read it. It's called The Source Document. And um, you, can, you can look at it online, The Hunger Project Source Document. Um, we were really working at the level of being on hunger, because hunger is an indictment, really, of our humanity <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, being, being, you know, lost. And there's the front and the back side of the hand of hunger. The front side of the hand of hunger is the obvious hunger, the hunger, uh, malnutrition, malabsorptive hunger, seasonal hunger, the starvation, all the things that I can talk about, uh, physical hunger. But the back side of the hand of hunger, you could say, is the hunger for meaning, the hunger to make a difference with our lives, the hunger to matter. Mm -hmm. And these two hungers are one. Mm -hmm. uh, the hunger in the affluent world to, to make a difference, to, to matter, to have a life of consequence. Mm -hmm. And the, the hunger in the less consuming world, I call it. This is all one hunger in the human family. And a right. hungry child does not cry out as a Bangladeshi or an Italian. A hungry child cries out as a human being. And so it's at a level of our humanity that we addressed hunger. Mm -hmm. And so it was really deep, deep transformational work. And what I learned from the Hunger Project was, and Bill too, is how we really form Pachamama Alliance and, and how we address the work we do at Pachamama. So no, this is great. Uh, yeah. Um, thinking of the truth of what you said, that the hunger of the affluent for meaning, for being of consequence in the world, for, I would say, also add to the list connection and for a feeling of belonging. Yes. When, when the affluent world is hungry for those things, then it is going to necessarily perpetrate the systems of scarcity and injustice and exploitation and just blindness to the humanity of others that create physical hunger for food. They're absolutely all part of the same system. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to maybe just shift course a little bit. So, so yeah, we have a system of artificial scarcity in the midst of objective abundance. Somewhere I made a list of 20 kinds of artificial scarcity from food to water, to money, to quiet, to time, to love, to beauty, you know, the built environment, for example, being so much uglier than it was even a few hundred years ago, as far as architecture goes. So, so, you know, we have this artificial scarcity. I guess what I wanted to ask, what in your experience maybe shifts the inner conversation or brings people out of habituation to scarcity and into a place of generosity? In order for this condition of artificial scarcity to change, not only do our systems have to change, but the mentality and perception underneath the systems need to change too. Right. 
And what is it that makes that change happen? Like how does somebody become a perpetrator of abundance through generosity, whereas before they were locked into these systems of, of fear and scarcity? Like what happens to somebody to make that shift? And, and how do you invite that in another person? Holy moly, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, A, and then B, and I don't have a formula, but I, I will... I've or maybe you just have a story about somebody who went through that shift. I'll just say that one of the things that I... One approach to respond rather than answer that question is that when we, as a human being, discover we're living in a, a body of unconscious, unexamined assumptions, unconscious, unexamined assumptions... Mm-hmm. and we begin to examine the examiner, in other words, look at our own eyeballs, that's, to me, that's where real access to freedom from a mindset that we don't even know we have begins. It's, it's hard to produce that outcome um, because you're the person looking through the mindset that you're mm-hmm. trying to see that you have. You know what I mean? It's just very challenging and I also think people don't really want change they want transformation and I make a distinction between change and transformation change in my way of thinking is uh, you have to make something wrong you kind of insult the status quo Mm -hmm. to have something different Mm -hmm. so it's usually you make something wrong and something right Transformation, I don't think that it does that. Transformation doesn't deny or insult the past. It completes it and has it suddenly make sense. Mm-hmm. And it transforms not only your experience of now, but of what you, when you look back and when you look forward, everything looks, it's all the same content, but the context is, is, is shifted and context is decisive. So how do we have people wake up? I really don't know. I mean, Pachamama, that's what we're working on all the time. And we have programs and, you know, ways that we do that. We take people to the Amazon, which is a huge, huge, huge experience for people living with indigenous people, beginning to just access the world in the way they see it um, is, is life-changing 100% of the time. I mean, there aren't people who go at least the way we take them and come back and don't see the world differently. In a, but I'd say in a transformed way. And then after that transformation is, is rooted in who they are, then behaviors do in fact change. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not that change isn't useful and isn't important, but fundamentally my life has been about transformation mm-hmm. um, and then anchored by changes in behavior anchored by changes in in action, anchored by changes in relationships. Um, And I I would just say, I mean, I'm just thinking in the Hunger Project, we had a a zillion stories about the Hunger Project, but um, ask me the question again, so I tell a story that matches your question. I mean, like, I think these stories are important because so many people, including sometimes myself, fall into this kind of despair that actually rooted in the kind of change that you were, you know, calling change as opposed to transformation, which sets up something wrong and then tries to basically go to war against that thing. It sets up a war situation where there are the good guys and the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Guess what? The bad guys are always more powerful. You know, it's the military industrial complex, you know, it's, <laughs> I mean, the bad guys are always more powerful. So basically that formula is, a recipe for failure mm-hmm. and it's a recipe also for there's like a psychological gratification for being on the losing good side and, mm-hmm. and but if you want actually the world to be different than it is now like actual transformation you're, you're gonna have to give up that gratification of you know being the good guy mm-hmm. so if that formula is a recipe for failure then we have to look at another path for toward transformation, which, in, which doesn't involve beating the powers that be at their own game. First, you make them wrong, then you tear them down. 
yeah. but rather depends on people within what we would like to call the bad guys having a change of heart. Mm-hmm. And so the stories, and even in, in films, like it is actually when, when the plot of the film is the good guys, the superhero finally defeats Lex Luthor or finally defeats whoever the bad guy is, that actually, it leaves me feeling really hollow, mm-hmm. you know, because there's part of me that, that's like, this is just a fantasy, right. it's a, a sop to my despair. Mm-hmm. But the movies that really make me feel uh, motivated to do my work are the ones where the bad guy, so-called, has a change of heart. Mm-hmm. So I would love it if you had, had a story just any story about a change of heart, you know, the per- especially the person that we would write off as hopeless, having a change of heart. I mean, maybe the Amazon does that to people or maybe some of the other things. But if anything comes to mind about that, that would be interesting to me. Well, I would, I'll, I'll tell a story about India. Um, it's a Hunger Project story, and then maybe there's a lot of stories floating above my head right now. But um, one of the most beautiful experiences I had in my life was being in a place called Dharmapuri, which is in Tamil Nadu, a part of India. India has 24 states, and one of the states is super poor. Many of them are. Uh, and one of the poorest parts of, of this area is called Dharmapuri. And I was there to work with women who asked us, asked us, the Hunger Project, to come help them stop killing their baby girls. So. These are women who prayed when they got pregnant. Uh, and the culture really produced this kind of uh, behavior in women that prayed and prayed and prayed during a pregnancy that would have a son mm-hmm. because girls were not valued. Mm-hmm. And their life was so horrible, they didn't want to bring a girl into the world. So they would pray that their child would be a, a boy. And if they had a girl, as soon as she was born, they would kill her they would smother her um, to death. Mm-hmm. And, and they would help each other do it, actually. Mm-hmm. And they had, had come to a realization that they wanted to stop this practice. Uh, it's called female infanticide. And they asked the Hunger Project to come and, and help them with it. And I was the person who ended up in Dharmapuri with these women, you know, I, with other Indian Hunger Project leaders. Uh, it wasn't an American coming in, but I went with my Indian sisters who were um, who knew this practice was morally wrong and, 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 and horrendous for the women themselves. And so we, I remember sitting in circle with them. You know, you sit in the dirt in a village that where people are um, living, you know, in ways that are almost incomprehensibly uh, poor. And um, the people aren't poor, but the circumstances are poor. Mm-hmm. And the people then think they're poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were sharing about the killing of their baby girls. And in some cases, some of the women had killed more than one, two or three, and helped other women do the same. Uh, and they wanted to stop. And we realized, they realized, and I was present. I'm not saying that I did anything, but be present. A white woman being present had power, mm-hmm. uh, had impact. To just sit and be with them and listen and cry with them. We, we invented a, something called awareness camps where these women would go and they would mourn the way went the India, uh, Indian women in, that, women in that part of the world do, wail and wail. And they named each one of the children that they had killed and then they would mourn for her and wail and hold each other and scream and cry and roll up on the ground in like a little ball. And then they, we would talk about the next uh, child and then the next little girl and the next little girl until they had mourned every one of the children that they could remember. And it's not that they forgot ever mm-hmm. uh, really killing. Their previous mindset was this was a kindness to not let this little girl live the horrible life that they had themselves. Mm-hmm. So they were doing something. They were. It was a gift, this soul. That's the way they held it before they realized they wanted to stop. And the, you know, the, you know, the pain in their heart that they had killed, it makes me cry, their own child, you know, I, you're a dad, I'm a mom, you know, after you give birth and 
nine months of pregnancy to kill that life. I, I could hardly believe that they had done it, but they, they had. And they wanted to stop, and they knew enough that they wanted to stop. But before we looked at how to stop, they had to own that they had done that. Mm -hmm. And they did, and it was so awesome. Then out of the soil of that grief, uh, they committed to themselves. And because I was perceived by them to be more powerful because I was white and I was from the United States and I was one of the executives of the Hunger Project, they committed to me and each other that they would never do it again and that they would never help another woman uh, do it. Mm -hmm. And it was the beginning of the end of female infanticide in that part of the world. Really, you could say not that meeting was the only place that it happened, but for these women, it was the end of that. And, and in that state, then we, the Hunger Project, we created with some of the Indian movie stars, they're, they're larger than life in India, the, the film stars, uh, one uh, film star, the most famous film star uh, woman was married to the most famous film star man. Mm -hmm. And even in the poorest village, they hold up a, they put up a big sheet and they show films all the time, at least at mm -hmm. that time, India. And so the most famous woman movie star and the most famous man movie star, they made a, what's called a PSA, a public service film for us, where they, um, you know, the, the woman comes home from the studio and tells her actor husband, oh, I'm pregnant. And they say, oh, we hope we're having a girl. You know, and Indian films are super dramatic. And she's pregnant. And then they, you know, a couple frames later, he's at the hospital and, the, and he's waiting outside the delivery room. And the nurses come out and they say, it's a girl. And he says, it's a girl like that. Uh, and then they celebrate her, and then a few, few frames later, you see her in school, and she's raising her hand, and she's the best student, and then you see her, she's on a motor scooter, and she's got a briefcase on the back, and it's, she's obviously some sort of an attorney or business person, and she's taking groceries to her elderly parents, and then they say at the end of this, it's like a two-minute PSA, so mm -hmm. they say it's such a gift to have a girl child. And we showed that PSA, I mean, I'd say a million times, probably 10,000 times, in this particular area where we'd had these awareness camps and this, these commitments were made. And it spread throughout the state of Tamil Nadu and then, you know, India's, you've been to India. I mean, you know, it's, it's incredible. And I'll, I'll, I'm just going back to this moment where I was witness to a, what I call like a revelation uh, with, a, it was a handful of women, there were 16 women in our first awareness camps. Then we ran awareness camps all over India. Um, but it, those women that had the courage to tell the truth about what they'd done and own it and then make a commitment to a new way of seeing, seeing, you know, seeing their lives in the world and what it means to be a, a female. Um, is is at the very heart of what we do in the rainforest now with Pachamama Lions and the work we do with women there and the work I do with my daughter and my granddaughters and what I know to be part of now how I live my own life. Yeah. I don't know if that story it makes the point you were it, asking. Yeah, I wouldn't presume to reduce that story to a point. Um, that's one of those stories that just, you know, I just like to let it in and let it work me. You know, and, and just in contrast to the conventional approach to a problem like that, where, you know, you'd have to exercise some legal penalty for these women, punish them for doing a bad thing. And how much more powerful the, because the, that, you know, punishment doesn't actually bring any healing at all. Yeah. And to understand, you know, like, yeah, I'm a parent, like, it's inconceivable to me that I would ever be in a circumstance where I would willingly kill my own child. And if it's inconceivable, that means that I lack understanding of something. Mm -hmm. 
So it asks me the question, what would it take? What would it take for me to do that? And that is the question that brings us to compassion. Like, what is it like for these women? And when you really go there, then you get to the place of commitment of, I cannot allow this to happen. This is not a world that's okay for me to live in. So I find these stories powerful on that level and also powerful on the level of transformation. Like women who did this can heal from it. Yes. And and that means that our society can heal because this is just a distillation of something that, that has been happening on many levels to everybody really in some sense, like what precious thing have you killed? Um, because that's just the way it is, because you were in a desperate situation, because you were afraid to, to like, what, what killing are we participating in right now? You know, and what then is revealed and we're, and we're, and we can say no more, mm-hmm. like, no matter what, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, and what help do I need to, to fulfill that pledge? Because the circu- just when you say that, it doesn't mean that the circumstances that brought you to that are, are magically gone. In fact, probably another invitation will arise to participate in the killing of the world. And how am I going to be strong? Like, I can't just delude myself um, and, and wave a magic wand. Like... I, I, this is a, a, a dimension that sometimes I feel is um, missing or um, not talked about enough in the kind of self-help and transformation movements is, and at least in my experience, it's been this way, that I can't rely on my will alone, but that the strength of my will depends on the strength of my connections and the people holding me in a commitment and resonating with it and helping me when I'm weak. Yeah, and it's significant to me that these women were in community yeah, and, and saying this publicly, you know, which is a cry for help. And, and also, here's another thing that I, I didn't say, and I think it's a really important part of it, is they spent part of, after the wailing, then there was a whole process of forgiving each other mm-hmm. and forgiving themselves because they began to re-see, re calibrate themselves around the the birth of a, of a baby girl and they then saw what they were doing was wrong I don't know this thing about forgiveness is so powerful I remember I had the as I think you know the great privilege of working with Mother Teresa and she she used to say she didn't talk a lot but when she did talk she said good stuff and she, she said forgiveness is the most powerful form of love and the hardest and the most difficult to express, and um, particularly forgiving yourself. And, um, and that was a, another part of this scene that I'm painting for you that was just awesome, to forgive themselves for murdering their own child, and then forgiving each other for helping to do that. And, and that, so that word forgive, I remember someone, Michael Beckwith or someone, Defined it in a way so you can go forward. Anyway, forgiveness was a huge part of this process. And when we talk about punishment and, you know, retribution and all of that, it's, it so doesn't work <laughs> because we're all fallible. We all, you know, I'm working now with Pope Francis is just such an awesome leader, I think, in my mind, I, I find him to be one of the, really remarkable leaders on the planet, and I had an opportunity to be with him in Rome uh, recently because he's taking on the Amazon, and he's going to have a synod for um, for the entire Catholic Church. Uh, his He's trying to, you know, he has a lot of pushback inside of his, his mm-hmm. institution, as you know, but he wants to apologize for the per- church to all the indigenous people of North and South America formally for what the church has done to them and their and their and their ancestors. And uh, he's he wants to take on the Amazon rainforest and uh, stand with indigenous people to protect it. And um, 
he one of the things that he's doing is he's he's rescinding the doctrine of discovery do you know what that is mm-hmm. yeah the doctrine of discovery this horrible horrible thing it's called the papal bull mm-hmm. where they pope and popes in the 15th century told the explorers go to the new world it was a mandate you know take the land enslave the people and if they won't become slaves kill them and that's been in effect for 500 years and he's rescinding it and he wants to repudiate it so repudiating it is different than rescinding it mm-hmm. but because the pope is infallible this is this completely stupid thing uh it's you don't you can't repudiate so so now they're working danny sheehan and some of the people that you probably know are working with pope francis on getting rid of infallibility i mean you know when you think of how in the world could any human being i don't care who they are be infallible Mm -hmm. so so these are these are real transformational moments that we're in now i think in i think we're in an evolutionary leap i think we're in a you know with global warming this powerful feedback to the human family to the species that we are and you know all of the kind of sturm und drang that you and i both are very familiar with i think we're in some sort of an evolutionary leap and people like you who are people are really realizing are are almost like you came from the future i remember someone said that about you i think our friend julio alaya thinks you came from the future to help us get through this <laughs> he said to me charles eisenstein he's from the future <laughs> he doesn't come out of this this culture he came from somewhere else an alien um I, I really think we're in evolutionary leap and that there's these seismic opportunities for transformation yeah it does feel like a watershed moment and and at these moments there's also the invitation to go back to the back to the past you know back to the customary way of doing things that is a version of infallibility where you are so sure that you're on team good that anything that confirms your goodness and rightness and helps you win over the other side that you will accept that even if it comes at the cost of the truth or at the cost of another human being that's a necessary sacrifice because after all you're the good side you are in a sense infallible and I'm seeing the, this play out as a uh, polarization in society, especially mm. in the political realm, that I've never seen in my lifetime to this extent, where the two sides are in separate realities. They're not even, they're not even able to talk to each other because what they consider to be a valid source of truth and information is totally different. And so I'm seeing this, this polarization that makes it look like we're going in the wrong direction where people are becoming less and less able to empathize with the people that they see perpetrating wrongs in the world. And without empathy, there is no forgiveness. If you can't say, yeah, if I were in the totality of your circumstances, I might've done that too. Like that's where forgiveness comes from. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing like it going in the opposite direction yet underneath the surface, outside of the political conversations, I really am seeing people get more and more awareness of, of become more and more empathic, more and more even courteous, you know, more able to take ownership of their stories and their projections and their assumptions. And there is a, an awareness growing that we have to let go of the war on the world and judgment and assumption and projection of another person is a form of, of war because you're setting them up as different from you. I wouldn't have done that. If I were one of those women in India, I wouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. How horrible they are. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, you would have done that. Mm -hmm. If you Mm -hmm. think you wouldn't, you don't know what it was like. Like, and, and it's scary to know what it was, what it was like to open up to what it's like, because if you fully take in, this fact. If you fully fully take in what it's like to be a child in Yemen, for example, right now, and then you have to say, this is not okay. Like I cannot continue living in the way that I've been living because, because this data point makes it 
unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we have a whole society that has that layer after layer of defense against really taking it in. And then there's the mirrored by the psychological defenses, which take the form of writing people off, judging people, condemning people. I wouldn't do that. So what I'm seeing is that people are starting to take it in, at least interpersonally. On the political level, yeah, still making a lot of stories about whatever, the terrorists, the immigrants, the, the white nationalists, the, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, whatever, like, you know, everybody has their own version of it. But people who profess, I've seen this happen in airports and stuff, you know, people who are, they all, it's two white guys, you know, having a conversation, invoking all these Trump ideas and, you know, the welfare queens, et cetera, et cetera. And then like in an actual interaction with an actual black person, totally like not patronizing, you know, but totally, yeah, human to human, mm-hmm. um, courteous, considerate. It's like, <laughs> this is an interesting schizophrenia here. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I'll just say that I'm, I'm also seeing what you're seeing, even when sometimes it looks like the opposite. Yeah, well, it's almost like the surface noise that we all are exposed to is so um, dissonant and it's upsetting and it's hard to be with. But it also, it may be, I don't know, that it's catalyzing something underneath uh, for us. And, you know, I'm a friend of Van Jones. You probably know Van. And Van just had this huge victory uh, with the criminal justice bill. I don't know if you're aware of that. But he, um, I'll send you a a little video that... um, Mm -hmm. He, uh, he's been working on criminal justice pretty much his whole life. He's a mm-hmm. commentator on CNN now, and so he has some real visibility. Um, and he's a liberal kind of progressive commentator, very, very clearly his uh, black man um, uh, identified with the liberal progressive right. left. Right. And he was in the Obama White House, and then he was driven out of the Obama White House, and they kind of took him down, and the they being you know, the people on the right, particularly uh, financed by what seems to be pretty clear, the Coke mm-hmm. uh, fortune. He, he, he tells the most beautiful story about this criminal justice bill that he's been working on pretty much all his life. He realized that Jared Kushner, who was not his, uh, not his best friend and somebody he didn't agree with in almost any way, his father was in prison. Jared mm. Kushner's father was in prison, and um, Jared Kushner went to went to visit him every week and really got exposed to the horrors of the prison of the prison system. So Van had the courage, I'd say, and the humility to go see Jared Kushner and said, you know, had they had some sort of a conversation about how, you know, we we both know the prison system doesn't work. Yeah. Would you work with me? I need to. Uh, find allies in the on the right side of the aisle and mm-hmm. and then he also worked very closely with the, the general counsel of the of the Koch foundation the Koch mm-hmm. I don't know whatever you call that and together along with other people in that part of the political spectrum um, realized that there was a lot of a lot of people who really wanted to transform the prison system that were on the right and he really didn't even know that. And then um, because he was talking to them, some of his most beloved friends in the liberal side consider, started to consider Van a traitor because he was having right. conversations with the other side rather right. than, oh, my God, we've made a bridge. We can start working together. No, they, they will, what are you doing? <laughs> kind of like. And so he, he, he's been, been really vocal and, and visible about this even on, on, on television how powerful it was to actually have to get off it <laughs> mm-hmm. about these people and listen to them and realize that they're human too and that they have the same, uh, some of the same things that they want and working together. And then there were people who, who really, because they didn't like President Trump, did not want him to be the president, 
who signed a, uh, a criminal justice reform bill. They didn't want him to get that victory. And when you think about it, you know, I even have that inside of me a little bit, you know, oh God, does it have to be a Trump bill? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's so much of that on the surface, but underneath, I would say, because our government is so dysfunctional, uh, no matter who's in charge of it, it's forcing us to take responsibility at a new level for the mess we're in and for the role we can each play, or at least that's one interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that because I, I learned in some, some conversation, maybe it was a conversation with you, that the revolution that took place, the revelations that took place in Scandinavia came in the 30s because things were so divided there population kind of rose up and, and created a, a, a new culture, a new political culture. And, and I really don't know uh, what this is, but if you take the long view rather than the short view, something really amazing and profound is afoot now in, in our country, in, in humanity, in the world. And, um, and I think you're one of the people, and I just want to thank you for this, looking for that truth, naming it when you see it. Um, you know, the, the more beautiful world we all know is possible. You are a voice for that truth, and I hope to be that myself, and I really appreciate that, that you're always looking for it, you're always drawing it out, you're always looking for people who can speak it and listen for it, and, um, and I just want to thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Well, those are generous words, Lynn. Thank you for speaking them. And I'll return it just by saying that... Um, uh, I feel really moved by your openness to truth and your willingness to put it above winning. Um, you know, you really exemplify that, that, I mean, that's what commitment is, you know, when you're committing to something more than to uh, something else, <laughs> which is, could be being right, you know, having been right all along. I mean, a lot of people's secret commitment is to that and, or to defeating the other side and, yeah, I haven't been in touch with Van Jones for a number of years, but I remember feeling that about him, that he actually was committed to something. And when you make a commitment, there's a sacrifice to be made. So one of the sacrifices could be the camaraderie of the people who are with you on Team Good. And now you're reaching out to the Koch brothers, you know, and now you're making alliances across the aisle. Um, this is going to happen more and more as the legitimacy of the system falls apart and more and more people, as you were saying, realize that even if you do win the election, nothing really changes because you've been in service to winning. Uh, this was, you know, George Orwell actually wrote about this in a distilled form in, in 1984, where the goal of the party becomes nothing but power. And they have an ideology that says the power is ultimately to make a better society. Mm -hmm. But until we get perfect power, complete power, you know, then we won't be able to do that. So power becomes an end in and of itself. And it sure looks like politics mm. is like that. And yeah, so I, I do see that. So with the breakdown of the legitimacy of the system, I'm seeing it's, it's confusing who's right and who's left anymore. A lot of the best anti-war websites mm -hmm. are kind of right wing. And along with opposition to the prison industrial complex, the war on drugs, uh, it's really confusing who's left and who's right. And I think this breakdown in our identity is a really hopeful sign. Buckminster Fuller predicted in 1976, he said the most amazing thing. He said that all the institutions of humankind are rooted in a you or me paradigm, a scarcity paradigm. Either you make it at my expense or I make it at your expense because there's not enough for both of us. That was the kind of belief system of the human family and to some extent obviously still is. But Bucky said that we, we now live in a you and me paradigm, a new you and me world where there's enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. And he said the institutions of humankind have all been rooted, the economy, governance, education, even religion, in a you or me paradigm. Mm -hmm. And that they will need to fall apart 
completely disintegrate and be recreated from a new paradigm, from a new soil, from a you and me, from what I call sufficiency, um, understanding the world. Um, and, and he said it would happen somewhere in the next, he said in 1976, it'll take 50 years for our institutions to completely become so dysfunctional that we have to recreate them from a new soil. And um, this is right around the time, if Bucky's prediction was right, the political system's falling apart, education is not exactly what we want it to be and falling apart, yeah. religion, the church, you know. Um, healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah. And so uh, this, this phrase we use in Pachamama Alliance that I want to use now is that the job of people who are awake is to hospice the death of the old structures and systems who no longer serve us. Mm -hmm. And hospicing their natural, they're falling apart because they're unsustainable, and they are dying. And if we hospice them, they'll die with some dignity, because they have served us to some extent, and die faster, just like hospicing a, a, a human life. Mm -hmm. And while we midwife the birth of the new structures and systems mm -hmm. that we now understand will serve us. And hospicing and midwifing are both acts of love. Mm -hmm. It's not... They're not, you don't attack, you hospice the death of what's naturally dying. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a, a job that everybody can do because it, it is, it's happening. It's really happening. And to witness it with appreciation and recognition and love and presence um, is making your life a gift, like you said, like we started this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. in the gift of your life a gift you also give then mm -hmm. yeah and then um, we step into the you and me world that Bucky Fuller was talking about mm -hmm. when everybody's giving we have abundance yeah right yeah, yeah we have absolute total abundance generosity and freedom. Yeah. It's just so close, you know? I get the feeling that it's so close. You could just turn and the world would be unrecognizable. Well, Lynn, um, like, I feel like we could go on and on, and I would love some time to do that and elicit some more of these stories, because these are, these are medicine stories. They really, they're going to, I would, I, anyway, just to bookmark that, I would love to do that someday. Yeah, I would love to do that too. I have thousands of stories oh yes i know i've heard one or two others and um, very moving yeah well thank you so much um and is there anything you want to just point people to who are listening like any resource or pachamama program um, or anything well i i did mention the source document it's interesting i, I never yeah. said that before but i think it's such a powerful document uh and if you look up the Hunger Project source document, it's online by Werner Erhard. Okay. Um, we'll, put then, it, we'll find a link to it and put, put that up. And then um, the Pachamama Alliance, pachamama.org. And then Soul of Money Institute is my mm -hmm. small boutique institute. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now I'm very engaged with the Nobel Women Peace Prize laureates uh, on their work. And I, I'm a, very grateful to be a, a consultant and strategist for the Nobels. And... Um, we have something called the Nobel Women's Initiative, and some of the Nobels are in Hanoi right now, as you and I are speaking with this, these uh, talks that are taking place in, in Vietnam. So I would love for people to go to the Nobel Women's Initiative and see mm -hmm. how they can be supporting the work that the Nobels do on, on uh, elevating the status of women and girls. And then most of all, just uh, thank you, Charles, and I recommend to everybody to keep listening to Charles Eisenstein. That's what you need to do. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lynn. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. 
Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.